fans of Taylor Swift are very passionate about the pop star. What I like the most is that she's kind of grown up with me. So, like, mm-hmm. she very much sang my high school feelings. Yeah. But she's also very much singing my 30-something feelings. Mm-hmm. So she's Amazing. really, she's matured with um, with all of us, or mm-hmm. we've matured with her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So no matter what age I am, she can totally sing my heart. That's Brianna McReynolds at a Taylor Swift concert near Phoenix back in March. She's 32 years old, and Brianna's just one of the millions of fans, also known as Swifties, who got to see the star up close at her era's tour this year. Brianna, like many other Swifties, dropped a lot of money on tickets. So the upper seats were like 300. Mm-hmm. The floor mm-hmm. seats I got yesterday were 1,000. Oh, wow. for, both, for both of them. Okay. After okay. Yeah. Brianna spoke with my colleague Emily Yar. Emily is an entertainment reporter for The Post who has been covering Taylor Swift since well before she became this megastar. I have been following Taylor Swift really since she started in Nashville as a country singer around 2006. But I started writing about her about a decade ago, and it just never stops. I went to the very first show of the Eras Tour in March, and I knew there was a lot of excitement surrounding it, but it wasn't until I was in that stadium hearing the 70,000-plus people just screaming at the top of their lungs that I realized that I was like, oh, this is this is not going to be like any tour I think I've ever seen before and that a lot of us have ever seen before. Initial estimates suggest that the Eras Tour could generate more than $5 billion in revenue. Yeah, that's billion with a B by the time it wraps next November. The way it's going now, and also the tour is continuing through most of next year internationally, it's shaping up to be the highest grossing tour in U.S. history, if not global history. The tour has turned into an economic driver for cities, too. Places like Cincinnati and Los Angeles have projected they'll make tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars off of these concerts. And it's not just the tour itself. The film version of the Eras Tour pulled in nearly $93 million in its first three days, a record for a concert film. The re-release of her record, 1989, Out Today, is expected to be one of the hottest albums of the year. So it's no shock that, according to an analysis from Bloomberg News, Swift is now a billionaire. A question I've heard a lot this last year has been people kind of saying, I knew Taylor Swift was big, but I had no idea she was this big because it's kind of hard to escape any news about her at this point, even if you're not a Swiftie or you don't follow her music. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Friday, October 27th. Today, we're talking Swiftonomics. My colleague, economics correspondent Appa Bhattarai, spoke with Emily Yar about how Taylor Swift has become her own economy and what that tells us about how Americans are spending their hard-earned cash these days. I'll let Abba and Emily take it from here. Emily, I'm really excited to talk with you today because we've both been writing about Taylor Swift and her economic and cultural impact 
And I want to start at the beginning of the Eros tour before the tour even started with this intense demand for tickets. Ticketmaster crashed almost immediately. People had to end up buying on resale sites. There was this huge fiasco back in November. I'm wondering what that ticket buying process was like for fans. How did that impact how much they paid? And then how did that sort of set the tone for the frenzy that ended up surrounding this entire tour? I believe when Taylor Swift addressed the fiasco of ticket buying, she basically apologized to fans that felt it was like going through several bear attacks. I think that was the language she used. (laughs) Um, And she wasn't, I mean, she didn't do anything in this case. Like she repeatedly said that Ticketmaster repeatedly assured her team that they could handle the demand and it was clear um, they hadn't. So she felt very bad about that. But you're right. I think it completely set the tone for just how much hype this tour was going to get. Because, you know, I talked to a lot of people at these shows who, you know, are used to buying tickets for concerts that people really want to go to. And they, you know, set up their laptop or their phone. They're ready at exactly, you know, 10 a.m. local time or whenever they're about to go on sale. And and they know exactly what to do. But this was unlike anything they'd ever seen. They spent hours and hours in virtual waiting rooms. One dad described to me as trying to get tickets for his daughters. And he was just carrying his laptop around at work like, the entire day, he, even when he would just, you know, walk down the hallway, he would have his laptop on the off chance that, you know, the tickets would become available. So people have just never really seen anything like this. And I think what also happened is if you were lucky enough to get through, because you kind of saw the chatter of how difficult it was, no matter what the price was, just all logic like went out of your head and you were just immediately like, yes, I will spend whatever it takes. Like no matter the spending limit my friends and I had in mind, I'm just clicking yes because I need these tickets. I remember that day in the office and there was like just this buzzing energy. Everybody was glued to their phones. They had all these group chats going. They had like their first choice venue and their second choice venue and their third choice venue, like how far they were willing to drive. And it was it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. It was, um, yeah, overwhelming just just what people had been through and like how much money they spent, even if they were not intending to spend that much money. But they definitely thought it was worth it. And they were totally happy to spend that money. I mean, I've seen surveys that the vast majority of people would happily spend that again. Oh, absolutely. It was considered like an extremely worthwhile investment. So talk us through what are some of the other things that people ended up spending money on once they got to the show? Yeah, this was definitely an event for a lot of people or a a really big trip because tickets were so hard to get in local cities that if you couldn't get tickets where you lived, like you... If you were trying to get tickets to the show, you were likely very willing to to travel for it. So it ended up being, you know, girls weekends or, you know, going with family and like all the costs of travel like really added up. Like it wasn't unusual to talk to someone that had spent thousands of dollars overall just to see the show with plane tickets and hotels and meals out. A lot of places in all these cities had like Taylor Swift specials to try to get, you know, people to come there before the show. And then the merch was a whole other story because typically you would see like 24 hours, sometimes like before the concert, people would already be lining up to get the merch And I talked to someone who worked at one of the merch stands who had worked at other stadiums, too. And she had just said, yeah, she had never seen merch like fly off the shelves like she did at the Eras tour. So people were lining up at the stadium to buy like official concert merch? Oh, yeah. The line, like you would see like 
on TikTok, all these videos of the lines um, hours before the merch became available um, because there were like specific items that some people wanted to get and also like it would sell out. So that was became like another very important part of this to like get a t-shirt or get a sweatshirt and like show that you are one of the lucky people that like got to go to this tour. And then there's the friendship bracelets. I remember reporting on this economic impact earlier this year, and there was a stat from Etsy that they'd sold $3 million worth of friendship bracelets this summer alone. And that's not even counting all the people who went to their local craft store or, you know, shopped online to buy the beads to make their own bracelets. What do you make of that? I will admit the friendship bracelet phenomenon I was unfamiliar with it until this tour because some fans said that this has, has been a thing at her tours before, but never like this. And they told me it was because she has a line in one of her songs from her most recent album, Midnight's. The song is called You're On Your Own, Kid. And she references making friendship bracelets in that. Make the friendship bracelets, take the moment and so somehow out of all of that, it became a very intense tradition to make friendship bracelets and then trade them with other fans at the concerts. So many people talked about Swifties um, being a community, and there was a sense that you could, yeah, go up to anyone and trade bracelets with them. Security guards, with their entire arms would just be filled with bracelets, like parking lot attendants <laughs> also um, were, were showing me them. And it just became this really beloved tradition within the fandom. What do the bracelets say? They're all over the map. Some of them, again, are just like straightforward lyrics or just say Taylor Swift. A lot of them are just have initials. Since I was reporting on the shows, I, I couldn't, you know, wasn't going to dress up um, in costume or anything. So I think some fans were like kind of horrified that I didn't have any friendship bracelets. So they sort of made me take them, um, which was very sweet of them. And one person gave me one that just said, I-D-S-B, and I couldn't figure out what it meant, but they said that stands for her song, I Did Something Bad. So it was a lot of initials <laughs> or just kind of inside jokes. That is incredible. So we did some reporting on how all of these other businesses in the community got a boost from Taylor coming into town. And I remember a lot of like donut shops and coffee shops, bakeries, all sorts of establishments saying that they'd gotten a real bump, not just from people who were going to the show, but people who had come into town hoping to go to the show. They couldn't. So they just made like a little customized Taylor tour of it and got, you know, Taylor Swift branded sushi rolls or lattes or whatever the case may be. And so it really created this entire economic ecosystem beyond just the concert. Yeah, I think that was also a very popular thing that even if you didn't have tickets and you kind of saw a lot of the the TikToks and Instagram posts from people who just went to the parking lot and it was kind of a party out there too. So it brought even more people into town. Anecdotally, like I, you know, I heard from family members who live in San Francisco. They went to LA in the hopes of getting tickets, but if not, they were completely fine with being outside in the parking lot. And yeah, so that just really added up for all the businesses there too. The other thing that's really interesting to me is how many jobs this created and Swifties in particular who were going to these stadiums or near these stadiums flocking to these, you know, hourly temporary jobs they could get to just get close to her. What did you find there? I love that story, too. Um, I noticed this on TikTok uh, pretty early on of people posting videos of themselves, usually with the, the song uh, Mastermind, uh, Taylor's song Mastermind in the background, as they were like, this is how I got tickets to the Eras tour. And it was because they applied for jobs to work at the stadium and then were <laughs> able to stick around and see the show. So I ended up talking to a lot of people that did this. And it really ranged 
You know, there are people that worked at concessions or people who were security guards or ushers, um, people who worked in parking lots. A very popular job that you could apply for on this app called Tend was to give out the light-up wristbands that they gave to everyone that came in. So I think they hired about 60 people for that per venue. And yeah, it really did kind of work out great because it sounded like for the most part, I mean, you get to be there, you get to earn money. People said, I think you would make between like 15 and like $21 an hour at these jobs. And then at the end of your shift, if your supervisor either wasn't looking or gave you permission, you could just kind of walk into the stadium and and see the show. Fantastic. So we don't have the exact overall figures yet, but I've seen estimates that the tour is going to bring in more than $5 billion for the U.S. economy. And that's billion with a B, which is unlike anything I've heard before. I'm wondering, has any other tour or musical artist that you know of been able to do something like this? I mean, the Beatles, how would you sort of put this into context? I feel like whenever I bring up just how much money this tour is going to make, people always ask, well, what about Elton John? Because he's sort of known as someone who's been touring for so many years and has made so much money. But I believe the figures on his tour, you know, it's it's in the 900 million, so obviously a ton of money. But pretty much everything that's been reported says that Taylor's tour will be the first tour in history to cross the billion-dollar mark. And so that's, yeah, unlike anything we've we've seen before. The other big concert phenomenon this summer has been Beyonce's Renaissance tour. Do you have a sense of how that compares? I mean, I don't want to make a strict comparison. I don't want, you know, it's not one versus the other. But how does this sort of fit into this spectacular summer of like concert spending that we've seen? Yeah, it really has been. And I think there were a lot of similarities in those tours because uh, many people would travel to go see the Renaissance tour and they would go multiple times and they would plan, you know, weekends around it. And so I know a lot of people that did that. So I think it it was more than just the concert. It, it just became an event. And it looks like the tour, um, according to Billboard, grossed about $580 million, a huge amount of money. So it really did just like add to this excitement of the whole summer of concerts. After the break, Abba and Emily talk about how Taylor Swift became this business behemoth. We'll be right back. So take us back a little bit. How did Taylor Swift become as big as she is? She definitely got a very strong start in Nashville to the surprise of many executives who thought there was no way that a 15 or 16-year-old girl could relate to a country music audience. That was quickly proven wrong. And then she had a lot of crossover success, which is something that a lot of country singers often try to do because, you know, Nashville is a very contained market. The country music audience is a pretty contained audience. So if you can go pop, if you want to do that, then there's just the possibility that you can expand your reach globally even more. So Taylor did that very successfully. You know, some hits that people might be really familiar with are like Love Story. We were both young when I first saw you. Close my eyes and the flashback starts. I'm standing there. You belong with me. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? Every week we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's 
such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday. Shake It Off, I think, is maybe her biggest hit ever. And so songs like that really exploded and and brought her to a much, much bigger audience. So when Shake It Off was released in 2014, that is when she started, you know, touring stadiums and was already selling those out. But a question I've heard a lot this last year has been people kind of saying, I knew Taylor Swift was big, but I had no idea she was this big because it's kind of hard to escape any news about her at this point, even if you're not a Swifty or you don't follow her music. And I think there's a few different answers to that. But one of the big ones I have kind of heard a lot is because, you know, over the pandemic, she released these two albums called Folklore and Evermore. And it was a real different kind of uh, music for her. It was kind of more indie folk. She worked with Aaron Dessner and The National. But I knew you dancing in your Levi's drunk under a street light. And suddenly there was a whole new audience that discovered her. And we're kind of like, wow, like Taylor Swift is really good. So, I mean, I have my own issues about people not taking country or pop music seriously. But I think those two albums really propelled her to a new level. And then I think another aspect that I've heard a lot from fans at these shows is that by staging the tour in eras, they're getting to relive kind of their own lives through their music. They've always followed her really closely, and they just have these very emotional experiences kind of hearing the music from when they were younger through now, and that's been a really big part of it. And yeah, sort of the last thing is that, as you also may have heard, she's re-recording her first six albums after a dispute with her former Nashville record label. And that has brought a ton of attention to her older music as well. So I think all of those factors combined just made her absolutely explode (laughs) this year in a way I don't know if, if people were expecting. Well, what's amazing to me is that she has been a star for so long that so many people feel like they've grown up with her. She has generations of fans and like, you know, Taylor Swift is one of the few artists that both me and my five-year-old daughter can agree on. And so we we listen to different songs, but we both like Taylor. Um, what do you make of that? I love that. I, I heard that a lot, too, at the shows. And yes, I think that is a huge part of this, is that her music really can appeal to all ages. And so the people that grew up with her are now having kids, and then their kids are listening, and they love it, too. So that, I think, also added to the Ticketmaster chaos, because it wasn't just, you know— people my age trying to get tickets. It was also, you know, parents trying to get for their kids, and it just all added up to just so much demand. So Taylor Swift has brought in all of this money uh, for herself and for the United States economy, but what's been her impact on the music world, especially with this tour? I think other artists are seeing the extreme hype and coverage around this tour and um, taking ideas from it. I mean, it's you know, artists obviously always, um, you know, sing their oldest hits that that people love, but there is something about putting it in eras or putting it in a kind of timeline that is really appealing to audiences that you aren't just getting, you know, the new music and, and then some of the old hits, but just everything in between. So when I saw the Jonas Brothers did, I believe it was called like five albums one night, it was kind of similar. And even I, you know, I cover country music a lot and I saw Winona Judd is playing to do kind of from 
start to finish two of her earlier albums and that I was like, oh, it's like Winona Judd's earliest eras. And so even I'm kind of thinking of it in that framing now. And I think that's something that will affect a lot of artists going forward as they consider how they can have a similar impact. Stepping back, what does Taylor's success in this moment tell us about what, what's happening around us? Why does this matter outside of, you know, these billions of dollars and her own star power? I think one thing that has stuck with me as her kind of economic impact and financial power continues, especially with the Eras Tour movie, which just opened, which earned close to $100 million in its opening weekend, yeah, is kind of what this says. And I was interviewing someone for a story about the Eras Tour movie, and she said it was just so nice to kind of feel like this summer— that women could enjoy things they love without feeling ridiculed, which sadly often happens between Taylor Swift and Beyonce in the Barbie movie. Women just showed up this summer with a ton of, of spending power and kind of showed what happens when, yeah, again, people do take the things that women like seriously. And again, I know there were a lot of men who enjoyed all of this as well, but I think that is something that really stuck out for a lot of fans who looked around and saw a lot of women in these spaces. And um, yeah, it just meant a lot to them. But also, this is just a really unusual cultural moment. I mean, we are in an era, to borrow a term, where everything is so divided and so splintered. Everyone sees different things on their own algorithms. And Taylor Swift is really one of the few cultural figures that is just part of the monoculture. And I think that's pretty significant now. I think it'll be pretty significant historically. And I think it's something that everyone should care about, not just those people who are fans of her music. Thank you so much, Emily. Yeah, thank you. Emily Yar is an entertainment and culture reporter for The Post. She spoke with Abba Batrai, an economics correspondent for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. It was edited by Robin Amer and mixed by Sam Baer. We have some exciting news to share about Washington Post subscriptions and audio. If you're already a Washington Post subscriber, you can now get access to Washington Post podcasts ad-free in Apple Podcasts. And there are more audio perks around the corner. So connect your Post subscription in Apple Podcasts and stay tuned for more subscriber-only audio benefits, like exclusive and early access episodes to our new investigative podcast series, The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. Those episodes come out weekly every Wednesday, but if you're a subscriber, you can get those episodes two days early, on Mondays. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Washington Post, this is a great time to start. You can get access to all The Washington Post has to offer, and now you'll also get ad-free podcasts and more premium audio perks. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or by following the link in our show notes. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Monica Campbell, Robin Amer, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Bishop San, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Stranovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. Our intern is Trinity Webster Bass. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs> 